Welcome to the CDC Podcast, Episode 45. With me this time is director of the 2015 documentary film Gaming in Color, Philip Jones. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So you did a Kickstarter for this in 2013 and ended in May of 2013. You earned over $50,000 to make the film. Yeah, the history of the film is actually a little complicated, and we usually get into it at, at Q&A is just because people are always curious about how, how did this begin and how did it start. So I was actually not involved in the company at the time, right after the very first GamerX Kickstarter, which is the convention that we do, and the very first Kickstarter for that gained a, a considerable amount of press attention, and there were a lot of people that were excited about the idea of having you know, a queer space in video games for fans to come together and enjoy. And that was founded by Matt Kahn, who's the, also the founder of Midboss and the stars in the film. And so there were these independent L.A. filmmakers that actually brought the idea to Matt in the first place. And they were like, hey, we think your GamerX idea is really cool, and we would like to do some filming at the con and, and sort of you know, make a, a mini-documentary about the con and just sort of you know, how how queer games have sort of come to be. Pretty shortly after the first convention, the Kickstarter funding for the film itself had dried up just from from filming there. Those filmmakers were counting on some additional outside funding to really pull it together to the, the level that we wanted, and they were struggling to do that. And so at a certain point, it was pretty much going to become one of those, you know, failed Kickstarter projects that you know, are successful but never actually come out. And I had joined the company about a week after the first convention, so I was brand new. But me and Matt were talking about it, and, you know, we didn't want to have, you know, a failed project, you know, sort of associated with us. And also just, you know, we believed in the power of what the film could be, and, you know, we had a strong vision for the stories that we could tell, and we knew some people. And so we actually were able to acquire the film rights from those those filmmakers, and we put together a, a shoestring budget and did a little additional filming and increased the scope so we weren't just, you know, releasing a movie about us. Now it's sort of more like a 101 on of a lot of things, video games being important to society, how they impact, you know, social play and relationships within games and why it's important for, for people to see themselves within games and sort of using that as a base groundwork to sort of lay out our case for you know, why queer people are involved in games and why they care so much about games as well. So I was not like a, a filmmaker or did any school for this or any anything like that. It was sort of just, we had the filming from the first convention. We knew other people in the industry that we could interview and some talented filmmakers like Ryan Paul, who pretty much pulled everything together on his own under, you know, me and Matt's direction. And we're, we're really proud of what we were able to <laughs> to put together, all things considered. Who did you envision as the audience for the documentary? Oh, that's a good question. See, we wanted to have a sort of resource that could help people understand. You know, when when GamerX, you know, was was first starting, there was, you know, we got attention from the Westboro Baptist Church and all these reactionary groups that sort of like latched onto it and, and drew a lot of attention to it. And the general sort of video gaming culture is sort of just very moderate and neutral to those sorts of things. So to have sort of people really wanting to support a convention or, or understanding why or, you know, being cool with something like that existing and getting covered on their, you know, their journalism sites, we wanted to have a resource that we could point to that was very, you know, conversational and sort of a little educational for those types of people that may not 
understand why queer people could feel these ways about video games or, you know, why certain things in games, certain tropes or characters could be doing more harm than good or any myriad of things, you know. And I think other things like feminist frequency popping up around then, too, just sort of got the ball rolling on a lot of these conversations and having a lot more, you know, modern critiques of video games and their culture. So for people that are, like, super into queer games and already know, like, you know, all the sorts of stuff that we cover, there might not be a lot new in the film, but we still wanted to make it to sort of validate those ideas. But primarily, it is meant for the general gaming audience as sort of, you know, a briefer on why, you know, if if anyone is curious why they're starting to see these sorts of things coming up in the general discourse, you know, even if they even if they like it or not, you know, we at least have something that we can point to them. It's like, okay, you can sit down for an hour with all these professionals and all these people, you know, calmly explaining to you in a multitude of different ways why this is important to them, important to the industry, important to video gaming as an art form. I myself am not a part of the queer community, but I have a number of friends and colleagues who are, and when you're around the conversation enough of the time, it's like, yeah, I didn't feel like there was anything, like, edifying for me personally in here. And when you're in that conversation long enough, it feels a bit hard to know what information is and is not in the general consciousness. So how did you decide, like, what information to try and disseminate to that audience? And what did you feel needed to be said, or what did you feel was already known? We wanted to start by having it be pretty personal. You know, we we had spoken to a lot of people who who didn't want to be a part of the film, so our, our cast was a little smaller than the amount of people that we had actually tried to get, just because of, you know, it's it's a little hard for people to to want to, you know, put themselves out there and just be open about, you know, their sexuality or their gender in, in relation to, you know, their career. So we started from a very personal place. And one of my favorite things about the film is just that we don't only have queer people that play video games and enjoy them, but we have developers and, and academics and, you know, people from indie to AAA, but also community, you know, organizers and journalists and all sorts of different kinds of people and all kinds of different, you know, professions, all different kinds of people that would be interested in video games for whatever reason. And we sort of, you know, our philosophy was just to sort of gather up these like-minded people and sort of let them tell their stories. And, you know, the, the film wouldn't be as good as it is without a lot of the amazing points and stories that are shared by the leading cast. As I was watching the film and I was just making my notes, I noticed that you you jumped from, like, topic to topic, and, and when you think about how many, like, issues and and other, and con- I don't want to say controversies, but just, like, threads there are to the intersection of queer community and the gaming community, that it kind of feels at times a little scattershot as you try to include everything, because it is just such a monumental sphere of overlap of just how much is out there and how much information. How did you, I guess, deal with that totality? It's, it's pretty difficult. I think that I, I was still very new to the industry when we took this project on. So, you know, four years later, you know, ha- how much I've learned since then, you know, would, would things look differently? Would we make different points or try to cover more? Absolutely. Um, you know, I could look back and, and look at the different ways that we might not have covered everything completely thoroughly. But I think that for where 
the general gaming audience is right now, and also just being a part of Midboss, you know, coming from both living in rural Texas and just being, you know, growing up as an average gamer and, you know, being in in that major community, you know, I, I can see the sorts of, you know, ideals and so you know, norms of gaming culture and then also contrast, you know, with joining, you know, a San Francisco indie studio, you know, pretty shortly after and just being much more acquainted with the industry. And I think there's a there's a large disconnect between the norms of, of people that are primarily players and then people that have development experience. I think it's really hard to sort of quantify what a queer game is. And around when the, the film was being made, that was sort of like the, the leading conversation is what is a queer game? And we didn't really want to define that in the film. You know, personally, I would say that that could be any game that is, you know, created by queer or, you know, predominantly queer developers or has made a, a serious attempt to, you know, include some sort of queer diversity in within its, you know, characters or story or, you know, actually, it's it's very easy for us to tell, you know, when, when someone has actually done the due diligence to, to try and avoid the tropes or to actually make sure that they're representing the people that they intend to in a positive light. Does that answer the question at all? It's such a complicated issue that I feel like any attempt to try and include everything is, is a valiant attempt. Yeah, I, I think that there's so few, like, queer games out there that it was hard for us to sort of, like, look at this as, like, a a cataloging experience or, or like, you know, a, a normal documentary that would sort of outline events. And we were sort of more outlining a sort of very new and, yeah, fractured community that's sort of becoming more well-known and sort of more discussed in recent years. You know, we're sort of just on that, the beginning of the upcurve. And I think that it was exciting for us to sort of be a part of that, even though, you know, queer developers have been making games and in games for decades and decades, but I just know so many that were afraid to professionally come out. You know, we have a, at GDC every year, there's a gay gaming's professional party that's been going on for over 10 years now. Uh, and when it first began, they would keep it hidden in, in a in a certain, like, boardroom at GDC, and, and so nobody knew what was going on. And now it's, like, on the official schedule, and we have a public party, you know, on, on one of the weeknights that everyone shows up at. So there's definitely been a lot of change in terms of people being more comfortable with being out in the workplace, but there's also a lot of harassment that a lot of the more public-facing developers like David Gator will face just for being openly gay or or for including things, you know, in the game and, and talking about that and, and making it known that that's their, their goal. Just, you know, sort of is... American culture right now. But yeah, other there, there were games like Mainichi by Matty Bryce and Howling Dogs by Porpentine, Jumpman by Andy McClure. A lot of those around that time were sort of very inspirational for sort of establishing what this sort of queer games, you know, movement, renaissance, you know, collective, whatever you want to call it, could sort of be, you know, we, could, we had a couple things to point to. And I recognize the B-roll footage of, of the gameplay during the documentary. Yeah, those are those were some of the the most like pioneering, you could say, ar- around around that time. And since then there have been others, especially a lot of more mainstream games having, you know, subtle hinted but nevertheless there sort of queer inclusion with the likes of The Last of Us or or Mortal Kombat X, those two in particular. 
I find pretty grand. Featuring tone of your film, because you the film is it, it's very upbeat, it's very positive-oriented and focused, while at the same time it's like on the day-to-day it can be actually the existence of like my friends and colleagues can actually be rather grim in this industry. What was the uh, decision to focus on the positive and why in particular? Oh, we just have too many likable people in the cast. I mean, just like George Sclears from from Riot Games is just one of the nicest people that I've ever met. And we were super excited to have someone from, you know, that was working on League of Legends sort of validate our film, you know, pretty early on. We're like, okay, we have someone, you know, we have a AAA developer that's here to talk about not only his experiences being a gay man in the industry making, you know, the billion dollar game last year, but also his work with sort of trying to prevent the, the, the harassment and the, the abuse of toxic behavior within their games, which was known as the Tribunal System in League of Legends, which I don't believe is still around. They keep updating it, like all the little things to try and to fix it. It's worth a documentary in itself. That, oh, seriously. How, how they've been trying to fix that, and I think it might have been. But yeah, between George and then Colleen Macklin, who's a professor at Parsons in New York, another one of my best friends at the industry, they're just they're all smiles all the time. Um, and we were we were already in the middle of of making our our game read only memories, so we had Tumelo on hand to make the soundtrack for the film, and he does these really great like synthy you know upbeat loops already, and it, we had like a, a very short timeline, so it was sort of just like take what we can get and go. But yeah, we we didn't want to make anything that was too dark or too um, sobering, I guess just because of kind of what you said it was it was not only made for people that we hoped could be convinced or sort of you know open their open their heart to to these sorts of plights that queer people face and i you know i don't think being too heavy-handed or too preachy or too sort of you know you don't want to make anyone who's viewing it feel like they're being blamed for what's being discussed you also don't want to make misery porn yeah, and it, it was also just that for for the queer people and the queer gamers and queer people in the industry that have been our most ardent supporters, I think that they deserve, you know, not having their entire legacy sort of tied to, you know, the harassment or the Gamergate or, you know, all these sorts of things. I think that we should be remembered for the art that we're creating and, and the work that we're doing to sort of make things better instead of, you know, just focusing on the bad, I suppose. And that's sort of just what we do as a company. You know, GamerX was sort of just designed to be the carefree weekend where you could go and not have to worry that, you know, anyone who's there is, is not cool with gay people or, or you know, isn't at least aware that there's a certain level of understanding and tolerance that we expect everyone to have no matter what you look like or where you come from or who you're dating or, or anything about you. So, yeah, it's we we definitely want to sort of not, you know, not skirt the issues in any way because we definitely address them head on. You know, the the film came out before Gamergate was sort of established, but I was fine with that because we pretty much talk about the same sorts of tactics and and arguments that they use to to sort of shut people out. So we can sort of talk about those ideas and those sort of norms without you know, needing to take a stab at, at the, the tumor. You know, if, if we kick Trump out of office, that's not going to change, you know, what gave him power. Do you feel that it's the two years later from its debut and four years later from its Kickstarter that 
that the material in the in the film still holds up like it's still it's still relevant or that the internet changes things at a hyper rate at this point do you feel it's still accurate or is it more of a snapshot in time i think it's very relevant i definitely get when people come up to me and they're like hey you should make a, a movie about gamergate or this should have touched on gamergate you know there are, there are other films like gtfo that came out shortly after us that were a little more able to sort of you know name the beast but i uh, I'm still in the industry, and I, I still see these sorts of attitudes, and, you know, there are a lot of people that are still engaging in, you know, that sort of online cyber mob activity, you know, regardless of, of how big it is still or not. And what's worse than that is just the prevalence of sort of the moderate neutrality ideals that sort of give way and are sort of permissible to those people that are intolerant. And so it's very difficult to sort of, you know, take a stand firmly on the other side of what's popular and what's sort of accepted. But I'm, I'm still a gamer as well. So, you know, when I, when I go online and I play Left 4 Dead 2 or I play Overwatch, you know, I see the slurs. I see, I see you know, not, not only, you know, homophobic or, tr- or transphobic, but also just like racist and, and misogynistic and ableist. You know, people use autism as as an insult fairly frequently on these games. And, you know, I care about that just as much as I care about, you know, the queer side of things. But I think that gaming in color is still sort of the leading example of what you can sort of give to people to sort of, like, sum up, you know, why why it's important particularly that LGBTQ people are validated and included. I'm going to make my own silliness here, but when I heard the title Gaming in Color, I thought it was going to be about race in games. Yeah, yeah, I didn't and name then, it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, it wasn't until, like, I, I, like, looked at, like, the, the the website it was, it was like, oh, Rainbow. Oh, that's what they meant by color. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the name is not my most proud thing, and I, I, I did not name it. It was already named by the time we sort of picked it up. You know, the Kickstarter had already ran. You know, we didn't want to lose our momentum. I didn't think it was the worst thing in the world. I probably would have changed it, like, now, if I was putting it out now. But back then, it didn't seem to be, like, something that would doom the film. It is definitely a little confusing, but I also think that it, it sort of, when when you see it on the Steam store or something like that, you know, you're not necessarily turned off or, or interested in it for, for that reason right away. So I think it also got a little more eyes on it just because it sort of appears to be a sort of, like, neutral take on on the games industry and community until you start to, like, research more into it. So this was your first film that you ever made. What kind of pre-work and preparation before you go into the actual making of it? Like, what did you have to do to set it up? We had an outline for sort of the, the topics that we wanted to address. Uh, when we picked up the film, all that had been filmed was stuff that was at the GamerX convention, which is like the last third of the film or so. So we wanted to greatly expand upon that. And instead of sort of like moving further, I sort of wanted to move backwards and sort of just start, okay, where did video games begin? You know, why why are they the you know the highest grossing entertainment industry right now and still yet like hardly respected in society on the level of music and movies and television and things like that. And why are games so far behind in terms of diversity in in relation to those other mediums as well? And I think that was sort of 
the the major like disconnect that we wanted to highlight first was just sort of like this is we're treating this like it's a young boys club when demonstrably that's no longer the case even if you know the marketing in the 80s and 90s wanted you to believe that was forever and i think it just sort of makes sense as technology grows and you know people want you know the vr they want the interactivity they want the, the augmented reality and i think that that's just where video games are going and i think with things like the wii you know while that may not have been the best console ever for for gamers that have been playing for decades and decades it was for a lot of people that had never experienced games before. And once that door is open, it's very hard to, to close it. And we all we all understand the passion for video games. And I've, I, it's just never made sense to me why that shouldn't be included with as many different types of people as possible. So that was sort of the first premise of the film. And so it was sort of like three three different main arcs. And then after that, we were able to assemble our cast, which was split up between people in California and then in New York, which is where Ryan Paul lived at the time when he was editing the film, and he was gracious enough to do those additional interviews, so we had a lot more stuff. And now just just the phrasing of the questions to sort of keep those topics in line, but also just keeping them very wide open, because we had, we had no idea like what, what this film was going to be until we had the interviews. And I think that um, with Joey Stern and Naomi Clark, those two interviews in particular had just had so much amazing content and so many great points that at that time I had never even heard of. And so once we had the interviews, that sort of shaped the story of the film. And at that point, it was just a matter of cutting and pasting them together in the right order. I, I am happy that we were able to con- you know, include the footage of the first GamerX convention. You know, we were worried about, you know, we didn't want to put out GamerX the movie, you know, under the same studio that just made GamerX um, or make it look like a commercial for us. But uh, that was sort of where the film began, which was, hey, we have, you know, this this major gathering now to sort of validate and sort of further this sort of, you know, the gaming community uh, as as these discussions have, you know, been increasing and, just with the internet and, and YouTube and, you know, all of these things blowing up, it's, it's anyone can get their opinion out there now. And so it's been very freeing for people that are in this tech industry, you know, should not be silenced the way that they have been for decades. You mentioned the, the phrasing of the questions, and as someone who's been doing these interviews for quite a while, that interests me. How did you decide to phrase the questions to, like, aim towards the subject and material that you wanted to get for the film? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I wish I, I, wish I, I had the, the, the interview <laughs> questions in front of me, because it was mostly just, just like having a, a discussion with them, you know, prior to the interview, just so they would understand sort of the scope of the film, and, and, you know, we we didn't want anything to be off-limits. There, you know, we we had people that were transgender and, you know, are different sexualities, and we were like, you know, you don't have to, to out yourself as any of these things or, or bring these up unless you choose to, but I think that when Naomi Clark, you know, sharing things personally about, you know, this is stuff that I used to do with my dad, or or, you know, I've been in this industry for a while, but I was always keeping my my personal life and my games life separate. I think a lot of those sort of anecdotal stories that were sort of provided were a lot of the more relatable things on a human level for people that aren't necessarily gamers that have 
watch the film or not in the game industry. You know, th- those are more things that a lot of people can relate to whatever part of life they're in. And then for people that are actually gamers, you know, we had, you know, all, all of the, the Grand Theft Auto Five jokes in the book, you know, that we wanted to make. Yeah, I hope that helps. Yes, and how did you get the process of actually filming the interviews? Did you have, like, a studio set up? Did you go to, like, their place of work or their homes, or how did you get all that done? Believe it or not, most of the interviews are actually done in the same building. You can't actually tell because they're all different, like, spots, but there was this place called Rebar in New York, which I think is closed since. But, yeah, it was the fact that we were working with Ryan, who lives in New York, and we were we had access to Joey and Naomi and Colleen and Shane and all the different awesome New York gamers. And so Ryan was was gracious enough to sort of just help us set those up and just make the in-person. I'm down here in Texas, and the, the rest of us are in California. So it was, it was, it was hard on our budget, you know, if, if we were going to be flying out there. So we were sort of limited to, to people that were local, but we were lucky to have people that were both on the West Coast and East Coast and sort of able to make it happen. You know, we're, we're very indie with everything that we do. And, you know, with, with a lot more pre-planning and, and a better budget and all sorts of things, you know, I'm sure that we could have done a lot better. <laughs> and what about the editing of the footage? How did that work? Ryan was also responsible for that. Because uh, one thing I, I know about documentary editings is that you have many factors, more footage to sort through than you do for a feature film. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you ever had to contend with that. Oh, well, yeah, I, I went through all, all the B-roll and all the all the raw interviews, so I was able to sort of, you know, pick out the best spots that, that I thought were important to showcase. But, yeah, Ryan is a professional documentarian, and, you know, me and Matt realized early on that we were going to need help, you know, not only with the video editing, but just, you know, knowing the ins and outs. And so we were very lucky to, to work with Ryan, to say the least. Yeah, I wish I knew more about this project because I would I would have liked to have talked to him as well then. All right. So how has the doc spread? Has it done well? After it came out, was it April 14? We put it out ourselves on a site called VHX. We actually put it out Pay What You Want originally, and that was a decision that we, we had thought about for a while, and it was just something that the website allowed us to do, and it seemed like the right opportunity. Uh, we never expected the film to, like, you know, blow up financially or anything like that, and that's not why we made it. And so, you know, after the Kickstarter, we we were sort of like, eh. So we put it up for pay what you want just so – also to be in line with the idea that anyone who, you know, was not a supporter of, of things like this or didn't understand and just was, was after the information and, and, you know, wanted to at least give things a chance or, you know – to, to do the due diligence, I suppose. We wanted to have the film be as accessible as possible for them and also for, you know, lower-income queer developers. You know, we, we're, not, we're not trying to take the queers' money, most of all. And so that went on for about six months, and then once things started slowing down there, we were able to get our foot in the door with Devolver Digital, who they have their own film branch, and they're amazing people. Uh, they were able to help us distribute the film not only on Steam, but it's out on iTunes, Google Play, PlayStation, Xbox, so pretty much all, all the video on demand places. So it's definitely, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, the blockbuster. I don't think a, a whole ton of people are, are, you know, super excited about the idea of, of sitting down for an hour to watch a, a documentary, much less one about, you know, gay video games. So it's a, quite a niche subject. But I think that 
we got a lot of interest not only from the queer gamers and developers, but the people who are sort of reactionary on the other side of things, you know, just sort of keeping an eye on on, on what's going on. So I I'm pretty pleased. You know, we're we're still we're still screening around. You know, it it shows up in universities or or curriculums. Or we had a we had a screening at the German Cultural Institute just this past GDC for their expedi- exposition ex- exhibition uh, games and politics. So we we still get to we still get to tour it around a little, not as much as it first year. That, that's that's interesting. So it was just part of like a general exhibition that games have politics in them, or what they're or the general politics of what games present. Yeah, it was it was all of the above. It was quite quite big. It was uh it was actually a like a museum funded like exhibition that has been touring for like a bunch of different cities over United States and Canada, and so we were just lucky to be part of the particular San Francisco leg of that during GDC. So we're not, like, in, in the official exhibition or anything. But, yeah, it, it had a, a bunch of, like, anti-war games there, um, just any any sort of, like, history of political statements being made through games and a lot more recent examples as well, especially with the inclusion of our film and they, they sort of, like, looked after Mainichi and, and other things past that point as well. You expressed that the doc was basically a 101 for queer-style gaming, or how would you put it, actually, because I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, it's hard. It's sort of it's sort of just like a basic sort of recap of what have the past, you know, couple couple decades been like for queer developers, which is unfortunately a very short history, and sort of taking a look at how things have changed. But yeah, it's, it's, it is pretty 101 in that it's like, it goes to a very base level of like why are games important? Why you know? I think we get a, we get a lot of like criticism that we're that we get worried about, and a lot of what we do in our company is sort of in response to the criticism. Like when we put out Gamer X, people are like, you know, why do you need this? I don't understand. So we're like, okay, so we we put out the movie, and then in response to to the film, a lot of people are like, well, why don't you make your own game instead of telling other developers what to do? And so we're like, okay. So uh, that's sort of just the trend of how our company goes. But yeah, we we wanted it to be accessible to people that didn't understand or had never heard, you know, these sorts of arguments being brought up in video games, or even not super familiar with video games. You know, we get to show off at a few queer fest- film festivals that aren't like particularly gaming focused, but it sort of does fall in line with other, you know, plights and other other social movements for those sorts of equalities. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is that because this is a such a 101 breaching of so many different topics that each one could get their own documentary in turn to go far more in depth. Oh, totally. I was wondering. I, was wondering, I, I figure now because you're you're developing games now that you might not go back and do that. But how would you feel about something like this? Because I do know that there are YouTube channels and there are videos that touch on these issues for specific titles and the like, but a documentary just is kind of like a, a degree bigger magnitude. It's that little metal on the shelf. There is a film about this. Yeah. I think I would have loved to have an interview with, with David Gator, or, you know, taking a tour inside Bioware, learning about how how are these characters designed and how do we get them through, you know, the... How do we get them okayed by the uppers, you know, and how, how do we, you know, what sort of work went into 
ensuring that there weren't, you know, offensive things being included. I think things like that would have been pretty practical and, and very interesting. So, you know, I, I don't think that we, we created the, the best film possible by any means, so I'd be super excited to see, you know, a more updated take with more recent examples, because every, every year now there's, there's at least a handful of games that, that have some queer characters in, in good ways or not. You know, Persona 5 just came out, and I think we could have talked about Persona a lot more and, and the portrayal of queer characters in Japanese games. That was something that we didn't hit too hard either, so... And then, you know, more more particularly, more issues of of gender and, you know, seeing yourself as as the character that you're playing. There's a there's another documentary called Trans Geek Movie that was kickstarted and that should be coming out soon that I've I've had my eye on that for years. So yeah, I'm I'm very excited for that one. I'm making a note for a future podcast. Yeah, I can put you in touch with, with Kevin. <laughs> I I'd, I'll wait for the film to come out first though. <laughs> So I have something to actually ask about. And since this basically came out in response to, like, the first Gamer X, how has the convention been working out in the years since? Yeah, I think that in terms of, like, the like the shock value and sort of, like, the, 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 you know, the attention that it got, it was definitely the first year was sort of, like, breaching the wall. And since then, you know, our attendance has, has steadily grown a little bit each year in year. We get a little more attention from the industry, in particular with like our sponsors having Intel and Blizzard and, and Microsoft and a lot of these big names uh, coming out to the event and, and sort of validating things by doing that and really helping out with, with sponsorships. There's not going to be a, a West Coast event this year, but we just held Australia too. actually was this past weekend in Sydney. And then pretty shortly we're announcing... We're going to be doing a Kickstarter for GamerX East 2, which was our, our New York-based event that we held in November. So we're doing a second year of that. So we're, we're always looking for, for cool ways to expand the con. It's pretty costly for us to keep hosting it in you know California. Mm-hmm. It's probably not super sustainable right there. So we're looking into sort of revising you know the sustainability and, and long-term plans there, but I mean, our our supporters and the the people that go to GameRex, I mean, mean everything to us. That's why that's why we do it. It's not it's not for us. Well, is there anything you else you feel I failed to ask about, but should about the documentary? Oh goodness, I think that just about covered it. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty easy to find. You can you can rent it on Steam for a couple bucks if if you're not super sold, or you know, people people try to like send spam to my my email inbox, so I'll, I'll usually just respond by, like, giving them a free copy of the film, and I'm just like, here, <laughs> enjoy your day and, and learn something. Because, you know, it's not me making the argument in the film. You know, it's it's my name on the top, but I think that the true stars in the film are the people that are in it, and I'm really lucky to still have connections with, with all those people and, you know, observing the, the work that they're doing. I, I would definitely like to do another film one day. We We actually had been teasing like a little side project that we were working on a little bit last year. I'm not sure if anything is going to come from that necessarily anytime soon, but it's it's definitely something that, you know, I think film is definitely an interesting avenue to sort of keep this fight going. But I think at the end of the day, we're also left wondering like when when are we when when do we become not relevant, you know? 
when when is when is GamerX no longer needed? You know, in an ideal world, GamerX wouldn't be needed. You know, every game convention would have diversity and would be comfortable for all kinds of people. Um, that's not reality. Or at the very least, it would have a very different purpose. Right, right. Or you know, I think a lot more diversity of of the focus of events as well, instead of just going to the PAXs, going to the Comic Cons. You know, all all the really big ones. I I love going to the smaller gaming events. Those are the most fun for me because they're usually they usually have something that the other cons don't, or you know, the people behind them put a lot more love into the kinds of stuff that they're going to include instead of just you know, what's going to draw a crowd, what's going to make the most money. Well, all I can think of is the final question. What is your favorite video game of all time? SSX Tricky on the PlayStation 2. <laughs> you had that ready. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer for me. So, there's a little history. I've been playing SSX since I was, like, very young, like seven or eight. Okay, so this this series is, like, this weird, very arcadey quirky snowboard racing game series has just meant the absolute most to me for years and years and years. And SSX3 was pretty well known when that came out in 2003, but after that point, the next couple games, 05 and 07, were just not good. And then after the the one on Wii in 07, the series just sort of dried up. And then it was at the 2010 Video Game Awards, right during yeah, right at the end they had they post they had a trailer for a new SSX game, and they called it Deadly Descents, and it was like super like gritty and dark, and it looked like Call of Duty on snowboards, and so everyone like <laughs> revolted against it, and it was around this time I was like super into podcasts and getting into the podcast community with a lot of other video game podcasts, so I started a biweekly sort of recap po- podcast that was sort of like here's what we know about the new game and. You know, they had a great marketing campaign. They were always, like, announcing new characters or tracks or stages or there was always a new trailer, so there was something to discuss. So we were putting out, like, two-hour episodes every two weeks. And then eventually, by, you know, whatever happened, I think the developers were just insanely cool and very connected with with the fan base. But he reached out to me, the, the creative director of the game, at EA Sports, and I went on to have three separate podcast interviews with that guy with a couple of, like, exclusive news that he dropped for us that got, like, picked up on, like, Joystick and Destructoid and things like that. So that was sort of, like, my first, like, taste of being in the industry. And ever since then, I was just like, I knew that I just had to be in the video games industry. And I didn't know how. It didn't really branch out to anything from there. But that that was sort of how I got my start and sort of, like, fell in love with video game development and things like that. I'd never heard of SXX Downhill. What was it? Downhill... Yeah, Deadly Descents, but they dropped that. Deadly Descents. So then it was just yeah, SSX, and it came out in I'd never heard of it. So, I'd never heard of it, so I, I was worried that the story's going to end, and then they canceled it. No. <laughs> <laughs> there there actually were a couple of different SSX games in between that time that were in development and were canceled. And so that one was sort of like what got approved, and we were just scratching our heads uh, but, oh, but thankfully, the art style and, and the whole, like, flow of the game completely, like, did a 180 since then, just because the SSX fan base is just one of the most, like, hardcore. I mean, if, if you're still going on forums for, you know, a weird snowboarding game that you played when you were a kid 12 years later, then, you know, we, we've got some strong feelings about, about the characters and, and things like that. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. 
I have to add, this is really going off topic for what the <laughs> podcast has been, but I have to ask, have you tried Steep? Yeah, I thought Steep was fun. Just fun? Yeah, it's, it's definitely not, not SSX or, or anything close to it. It's definitely a lot more realistic, and the physics are a little more weighted, and you don't, you're not as freeform, uh, but it's very pretty. I mean, they, they totally ripped off the wingsuit idea from SSX, and I'll say that. <laughs> but, uh, I mean... I, I I don't think that Ubisoft is is who's gonna put out the best snowboarding game of all time. I think it I think if EA Sports is instead of like so here's the whole thing all the snowboarding games they always want to be like oh we're gonna be like open world open mountain you can board anywhere it's like well okay but that's not really practical if you are actually making an engaging racing game you know if you just have a bunch of dry powder then you know you can explore and it'll look pretty but that's not as engaging as the old SSX games used to be where everything was really tight and it was like player versus player because there was the combat system. And there was all these gates that kept you sort of like locked into the same track. So what I want EA Sports to do is just do what they did with NBA Jam when they did On Fire Edition. Just put out like a small scaled down arcade version of the game on PSN for 15 bucks. They'll sell zillion. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> that's just, uh, that's just this, my personal like ramblings now. This has been Philip Jones, director of the 2015 documentary Gaming in Color. Tell the people where they can find your work and or stuff. Sure thing. Uh, I'm on Twitter at ProBearCub. You can find me there, or you can go to nidboss.com, which is our studio. You can find Gaming in Color, GamerX, 2064 Read Only Memories, and any any and all kinds of fun stuff that we're we're planning in the future. And I have been your host, Eric Swain. This podcast is associated with Critical Distance. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Every rating helps. It gets the podcast out there. It gets attention to us within the algorithm and all that other good stuff. And if you like this and all the other work that we do at Critical Distance, you can help by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash critdistance. If you can't support us monetarily, share the link around. Every little bit helps. Thank you again for coming on. Thanks, Eric. Have a great time. It's been a blast. <laughs>